Adam, so glad to have you here, sir. Thank you again for for coming on. Yeah, of course. It's a pleasure to be here. And then just jumping right into it here, Adam. When did you get started in music? When did when did your your fascination with it begin? Oh, I was pretty young. Um, my mother was always taking me to see concerts when I was real small, little baby. Like, I don't remember this stuff, but, you know, I saw James Brown. I saw Peaches and Herb. I saw um, just countless. We, uh, I was born in Cleveland. There was this really cool theater there called the Front Row Theater. And it was kind of like this uh, a theater in the round. So the stage was in the middle and it rotated. So it was 365 degrees. And I think that's really when my fascination started because instead of a traditional concert setup when you're just facing the, you know, the front of the band, in that situation, the stage would rotate around. So I got to really see what the drummer was doing and really what the keyboard guys were doing and the, and the bass player and all that. It was just fascinating. So, and then I started playing music. Um, I wanted to play piano. I started when I was about five years old with lessons. And, and that was, yeah. I, did you start with the piano or with the organ? Piano. Yeah, piano. first. Years and years. I, I started playing organ. I was probably uh, 16, 17 is when I got my first Hammond B3. And I just absolutely fell in love with that. And you, you you jumped in with a with a hammond, you did yeah. yeah that's it I mean that, that's great that's a that, that's a good endpoint right there yeah you met Doctor Lonnie Smith right when you were young in this is in Ohio in Florida um, oh, okay so he at that time and yeah that was right around um, when I was fifteen or sixteen and he was a giant influence for me to play organ. But um, he was playing at this nightclub. It was called O'Hara's. And he played, I don't remember, it was five or six nights a week. And my father was living in Florida then. And he lived about a mile away from the club. And even though I was underage, I think they served food so I could go. So when I would come to visit my father in Florida, I would almost every night go to see the doctor. And uh, yeah, to just, you know, he would, he kind of took me in and would talk to me and it was very influential. I mean, he, he really was a, a teacher to many of our generation of organ players. And then I would always take notes about what he was, was telling me about. And especially when I was 15 and 16, just getting into it, it was just fascinating. In fact, just um, I'm up in New York state doing uh, some gigs this weekend and you know, we moved the organ and I put the Leslie right behind me. And I was thinking about the doctor because he would, he would always tell me that he'd just say that he loved the feeling of having the Leslie right behind his back. So, you know, we rearranged the stage and I put the Leslie right behind my back and I was saying, oh, this is how the doctor would, would want to do it, you know? So just little things like that. He, ne he never taught me anything traditionally, you know, like sitting at the organ, showing me things like that necessarily it was it was more uh, concept based i'd say and those those concepts you still put into practice today oh yeah definitely 
Now, were you going off of what you learned within the the piano, moving it forward into the into the Hammond? Well, I mean, sort of. I mean, it's all the same notes and the that thing about it. But I, I felt two ways about it. And I mean, the first thing I felt was as soon as I touched the organ, I remember it. It just it felt more like my personality somehow. Um, I always love bass lines. My favorite thing about music is the interaction between the bass player and the drummer. And I, I kind of have a laser focus towards that. So with organ, I get to play the bass. So that's really the main difference. So I love playing the bass. I love playing the foot pedals because it gives me both sides of the uh, coin. The yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, now I've, I've also read that you've, you've been coined as a Hammond specialist. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I would, I would, uh, would not say anyone necessarily wants to hear me play piano, <laughs> including myself. I never really had the sensitivity that I think it takes to be a, a great piano player, like the voicing sensitivity and the, all those little, little things that really make piano players great and unique you know I was just much happier you know playing the bass line making sure that was together so mm -hmm. and what was was your first introduction to the to the Hammond especially was it that it was it was in the family or no it was it was from music so I was um you know I got pretty serious about playing piano when I was 13 or 14 and I started playing all around uh, in Youngstown, Ohio, because we had we had moved closer to there. And so I was doing little gigs around town with the musicians. And there was this a drummer named Shedrick Hobbs. He's a great, great jazz drummer. Um, he has a real interesting history, too. I mean, he actually played with Charlie Parker when wow. they came through Youngstown once, and he played a lot with Jack McDuff when McDuff would come through town and uh, you know just great guy and he, and he also took me under his wing we used to do a bunch of shows together and he would always say Adam I think you sound more like an organ player than a piano player you should you should try it out I was like okay well I don't have an organ you know so I went to see him once there's this great organ player out of uh, Pittsburgh named Gene Ludwig and uh, he was in town from Pittsburgh playing with Shedrick. And so I went to the gig and I said, I just went up and introduced myself to Gene and said, oh, I play with Shed, Shed and all that stuff. And uh, so Gene said, hey, you want to sit in and play a song? I was like, oh, wow, okay. I didn't really know what to do. So decided to play an F blues. And that was the first time I actually played one. And it was just... It, that's when I knew that I had to go in for the organ. Sure. That's, that's right time to do it in front of a bunch of people at a gig. Right. Yeah. yeah sure. <laughs> and, uh, you know, yeah, no, yeah, let me, let me, let me sit down on an instrument that I never played before. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be fine. It'll be, well, I'll, I'll, I'll feel it out. I'll, I'll find my way. <laughs> yeah. So, and then, yeah, I was just, just kind of lucky after that. I think, um, I was talking to my mother and I said, Hey, you know, I want to, start playing organ so we looked in the classified ads and there was someone selling their b3 you know like five miles down the road and i mean this was in the 90s or, or the, even the late 80s so 
it was not expensive. It was just heavy. It's not like today where, you know, it, the pricing's on the internet. So got a great deal, got, got it to the house and started really getting into it. If Gene hadn't uh, exposed you to the, to the Hammond, do you think that you would have naturally crossed paths with it uh, eventually? Probably in a different way because I always did love the organ, but hearing it as a kid, mostly in, you know, popular music, rock or soul music or something like that. But um, it wasn't until I really sat down and, you know, from that, I started to listen to Jimmy Smith and Jack McDuff and, you know, all that. So it probably, I probably would have played it, but maybe in a different kind of setting. Mm -hmm. Did that really inform your uh, your relationship with it being exposed to it at that age? You said fourteen or fifteen ish. I was probably I think I was probably sixteen. Now 16. that I think about it, because I remember driving to the show, so I must have just got my driver's license. You, um, a man about town. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, the organ is a special instrument, you know, and I, I also remember the first record I really heard that was also very influential, which was Larry Young's record called Unity. And it's, say, maybe a more progressive type of organ playing or jazz playing than than the Jimmy Smith records that I had, and I, I liked them. But after I heard Larry Young, I, I thought, wow, there's a lot more possibilities here than and to my ears at that age, I was more interested in that. But then from that, I kind of went back and got into Jimmy Smith and, and realized how he is, you know, the most phenomenal organ player of all times. Right. And was there, I mean, there, there was a scene of, of, of some sort in Ohio when you were getting into music yourself. Yeah, I played a lot of local gigs. There were great musicians there. But really, you know, I left. I got out of there as soon as I could. I couldn't wait to leave. And I went to I went to college when I was 17 and then pretty much never went back. So at 17, I had moved to Boston. I went to Berkeley for a year. And then I switched to a school called William Patterson in New Jersey the second year and because I wanted to be closer to New York City. Mm -hmm. It was about 10 miles away or 15 or something. And then right there, there right, right. Neighbors, neighbors. So yeah. I would go into the city almost every night um, to go hear music. Also at that time, it was great because the, all the organ players were a, a bit younger of a generation. Um, so I got to see all of the, the great organ players got to see him live. I got to know a lot of them. I got to, you know, see them multiple times a year. I would just go to every time they would play, I would go to all the shows. And how did, how did you start immersing yourself in it? You just started showing up like, okay, I, I hear that there's stuff going on over here, over here. And you just kind of figured it out that way. Well, yeah. Back, back then there was the village voice and just in the back, there was one specific page that had all the listings. So you know, if I saw Charles Erland's name, you know, I was there. If I saw Big John Patton's name, I was there. Or McDuff or, you know, and plus all the local guys that were so great. You know, Reuben Wilson was playing every Thursday up at Showman's. A great organ player, Bobby Forrester, I think was playing every Friday or every Wednesday. Um, yeah, so I was just out seeing, seeing organ music. 
was that super influential for you at that point? Like, okay, every, something's happening every night in this oh, yeah. area. Yeah. yeah. And then my second year, I thought, well, it's kind of, it's kind of counterproductive to live in New Jersey and then have to drive to the city every day and then come back. So then I did the, the switch and I was living in New York city and would commute out to New Jersey to school. So then I could have like a reverse rush hour situation. Much was better. it, yeah, ended up being easier driving wise? Oh yeah, way easier. Cause you know, I would be in the city every day anyways, if it was the weekend or at night or almost every day. So then I was in the city. And so, you know, all I'd have to do is drive out to school and come back. And you're, and you're driving, you're not, you're not taking the, the transportation. Yeah. You're out there, you're out there finding parking spots. That's, that's right. Tough. Alternate side parking. I became a, I became a master. I think I only got towed once. Out of the, and, was it, was a span of time. For getting towed? For, for, for that, for that, that time of, uh, of just learning how to, how to park and park in your vehicle. There was a, was oh. a span. You know, you just got to read the signs. Basically, I think when I got towed, someone had stolen the bus station sign or the bus stop sign, and there was a bunch of cars parked there. And then I came back the next day and all the cars were gone and it was a bus stop. So I said, oh, you know, <laughs> still numbers wise, this is pretty good. Yeah, pretty good. Was the first kind of band that you became a part of there in New York was the Sugar Man 3? I, maybe so as, as far as a band situation. I mean, I was playing gigs almost every night as, as, a, as a freelance sideman, you know, from the time I was about 19 all over the city. But it wasn't really a formal unit. It would be, you know, you're playing with this guy or this guy or this guy's great and you're around town and but yeah, Sugarman 3 was probably what I would call as the first actual band where it was, you know, Rudy on drums and Neil and Coleman. And then, uh, yeah, and, you know, probably the first recordings I was on that the people started to notice was, was that band. And were you, were you lugging around a Hammond 3 at this uh, point? Sometimes I did have a B3 in my apartment and i did have a van so on you know on special occasions i we would we would get it in the thing and take it to a gig but uh usually around town you know it's just something i could put in a taxi because i mean it's a it's a major ordeal to move one of those things and sure yeah it's heavy and yeah yeah and a lot of those gigs i was doing were just like the place, the venues were so small in New York. It wasn't even a venue. Like we'd be playing at a restaurant background music or something like that. So they don't necessarily want you to come in with a Hammond B3 and a Leslie if they're trying to, you know, serve appetizers or something. But yeah, <laughs> it's good. It's good ambiance music. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. Uh, was it, is it specifically a B3? Is that, is that your, your, your go-to? Well, there's, there's a few Hammonds that have all the same internal parts, the Hammond B3, the Hammond C3, and the Hammond A100. So they sound exactly the same. It's just that they have a different physical look to them. And the most desired one is the Hammond B3 because of its, it has like molded legs and things like that. That's what you'll see mostly if you're, if you're you know, watching some concert on television. It's the most sought after uh, um, 
physically, I guess. Mm-hmm. Is that the one that appeals to you the most visually? It doesn't, that doesn't really matter. It's just really the sound of the organ. But uh, yeah, there is something about it. It's, the B3 has a very specific look. So I'm always happy to, to, to see one of those. I was just in Japan for a few, few weeks and did some shows and there's a lot of Hammond B3s over there. It was a nice surprise where here you might get a club might have an A100 or it might have a C3, which is great. But then once you get the, the C3, it's a little different. Also, you know, now that I think about it, with the B3, the feet are exposed for the audience. So if you're playing foot pedals, then the audience can tell that you're playing foot pedals. And I think it adds a little more of the, the mystery to the instrument. Mm-hmm. Um, the C3 and A100, they have a, a covered back, so you can't you can't see that. You can't see the magic behind the curtain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, uh, getting back to the Sugarman Three, uh, so that I mean, that was that was really like the first actual band that you were that you were playing consistently with the same dudes, mm-hmm. relatively regularly. Yeah, and that was the first band that uh, that I was in that we really started touring. You know, um, I remember our first gig was in Italy. We flew over there and we couldn't believe that, like, the way that they released that record was was really great. And we started to get all this interest from Europe. So we started with that one little, like, one-off in Italy. And then I think we went back and we maybe played Switzerland and London and maybe one other little town. And then we just started going to Europe and there was a big audience for that music at that time. So we would probably go to Europe three or four times a year for, you know, up to two months at a time and got to really travel and see all that, uh, those amazing cities. And uh, so that was a really great experience. And we did that for years and years. How soon after uh, the, the formation of the band did you guys start doing that? Let me think about it. Our first record was called Sugar's Boogaloo. And I think we recorded that in 1996, maybe, 97. I was 21 years old. And, you know, probably six months after that, once people heard the record, we started to get... Um, calls i think they had put a little phone number on the back of the album that said for booking info call this phone number but they released the album in a way that you couldn't tell that if it was an old record or a new record um and so i think they just started getting phone calls on this voicemail they had set up you know good deal i mean luckily it wasn't your phone though so that's yeah i think it just went to a a voicemail (laughs) uh and that the band started in 93 or 93 probably probably more around 96 96. 96. oh 96 okay all right yeah i think so 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 relatively soon after making the um the creation of the band did you guys it really started moving yeah i mean neil sugarman you know he had a really like laser focus on, on what he wanted the band sound like and you know a specific style and i think that really helped because it uh, differentiated us from other similar bands, you know. So 
people knew if it was Sugarman 3, it was going to be this funky, soulful, boogaloo-type mix of, of music. And, you know, we were, we were playing parties all over the New York City, um, doing a lot of gigs along with DJs that were playing similar music. There's a real scene for it back then. I mean, we were busy. When we were in New York City, we were probably doing, you know, two to three gigs a week easy with that band. And then on the road for all those years too. So, wow. It was a really cool scene. Did you pick up instantly what the band needed to sound like? No, I had a lot to learn, you know, because, um, as you know, I was 21. I was still like developing my style, had a lot of interests. I was also playing a lot of jazz at that time and, you know, blues stuff and just whoever would ask me to do the gigs. So, um, I understood the direction because a lot of the Jack McDuff records, we were doing a lot of the kind of funky boogaloo organ stuff that that Jack McDuff had made and, and Lou Donaldson. So I knew that, but still like I really learned how to play that style because if you if you play outside of the genre that it's supposed to be, it doesn't sound right. So and as a young, uh, as a young man, you know, I probably was tempted to play all this like complicated stuff that I had been practicing that doesn't necessarily fit into the genre of music. So, yeah, it, I understood what it was, but yeah, I, I tweaked it out, and uh, you know, I know what to do now. <laughs> so it took a little bit, but you, yeah, tra yeah. trained it, trained it That's out, yeah. Like, you know, just because I'm at home practicing some like complicated thing and I want to try it doesn't mean that it's going to sound right if I put it into a song that it's not supposed to be in. Right, right. So it's just like coming to terms with that. Now, uh, what was the the comparison between like what, you, what the, the, the reaction was in the States, especially like New York, for example, and like what you were who you're playing to in Switzerland did was was there like a major difference of like the reaction of the audience or was it pretty same yeah I mean it was on a it was definitely on a different scale I mean we were playing really cool parties over the city but usually small clubs here and there but we went to Europe and we were playing uh you know big festivals or bigger rooms um I remember I didn't even know what it was I remember in 2000 we played uh, Glastonbury Festival, and uh, I had not heard of that festival, and you know we showed up, and it's like, oh man, there's like a hundred thousand people here. What's happening? You know, <laughs> so we were getting really excellent bookings, and and uh, you know playing North Sea Jazz Fest and uh, Montreux Jazz Fest, and and in New York, you know, we were playing some kind of cool underground parties, but it wasn't on the same level. I've been super lucky in my my career because my main goals were to play music and travel and get to see the world. And, you know, I got to certainly see more of the world than I ever thought I would be able to. And it's all thanks to playing organ. So, awesome. And that way I was ready. I didn't care where I was going or what I was doing as long as I was on that path. You're, you're ready for it. Yeah. Whatever it came. Mm -hmm. um have you since taken the what you've experienced and learned from that 
time of being in that band from was it 96 to still still presently it's not it's not done done. i mean we would we're still technically a band it's just we haven't played in a few years so hopefully i think the last time we did shows we did a little tour of the uk in maybe 2017 okay super fun and i think we did a like a weekend in san francisco shortly after that but uh good deal um yeah i mean we're still going it's just everyone's kind of in different places you know i'm living in florida uh rudy's in new york you know neil's in switzerland you know we're all kind of everywhere so it's hard to it's not like it used to be when we all lived within you know 20 blocks of each other that makes it a bit easier i've heard yeah uh it being on a hiatus now but i mean still going up until i mean recent years here has has that the time in that band gone on to uh inspire and just help what you have done since then with like you know scone cash players and your in your solo stuff has that informed what you were doing okay yeah certainly especially scone cash players i mean it's, it's kind of like an extension of of all that sort of thing because I want Scone Cash players to be, you know, in that same soul, funky organ, organ players, the lead singer kind of world. And it was it was so great that uh, Neil Sugarman was able to play on my latest release on Daptone. Um, so when we recorded that, uh, the, that record's Brooklyn to Brooklyn. You know, he came out and we spent the week together making the record. So that was that was a very nice uh, reunion. That's great. Um, when when did you decide it was time to start Scone Cash Players? Let's think. Uh, I I probably did our first recordings with that around two thousand and seven or eight, and uh, just started being like, oh, you know, I think. Um, well, Sugarman three, we, we all got very busy because Neil was also, um, as a, a co-founder of Daptone Records and with Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings, they really took off. They were so busy with Sharon Jones and they were, you know, doing all these amazing gigs. And well, then there was the Amy Winehouse years too. So it left a little more time and I was busy with another band touring, um, so I was like, oh, I want to keep doing this stuff. So I started Scone Cash Players um, just sort of as a side project in maybe 2007 or eight or something. And then it just kind of grew from there. And it wasn't until I moved to Florida in about 2000, I guess, 15 now, that I really started focusing that uh, on that band. You know, New York City, I was always so busy as a sideman playing gigs all over town or doing different things, it was hard to focus on my own project, but Miami gave me the ability to, to just do that, focus on that for a change. Mm-hmm. And uh, where, where did you come up with the, with the idea to name it Scone Cash Players? It was, it was a little bit of a, of a um, paying homage to the Ohio players, right? Right. Because my Ohio origins, I always right. like in the name and Scone, of course, uh, and cash is my middle name. So, oh, okay. Good deal. It's on my passport. It's on my driver's license. So it's all, like, it's all legit. Yeah. <laughs> Very nice. Uh, now, did you, 
do you kind of know what you wanted to do with uh in in terms of sound and what how you wanted it to feel before kind of getting it going yeah and you know i mean i try to make each record a little differently um the, the first recording we did uh is actually the mind blower um and that was more of a probably like a funky organ party kind of thing and then uh blast furnace more of a orchestral kind of journey mm -hmm. and then as the screw turns so probably more back to the party you know there's some ballads but it's mostly up tempo party type music and then uh brooklyn the brooklyn uh was able to fulfill a dream i always wanted to have a choir um along with the organ and um so the organ is taking the part of the the lead singer and then you have the the choir and all the instrumentation and some strings and things like that. But able able to right right it's still keeping that the the um, the template of having it funky. Yeah. Does the band write with you? Is it is it like a, an all encompassing thing, or are you bringing ideas in for then? Because there's there's three all three of you mainly all together, right? The lineup changes. Um, depending on who's available, but mostly, yeah, I write all the songs, mostly there we have some co collaborations sometimes, like maybe somebody will, you know, well, like Ian, Ian Hendrickson Smith on Blast Furnace, um, he wrote all of the horn arrangements, um, but I wrote all of the, the other music and he put all that together. So, but for the most part, it's all, I'm, I'm writing the songs by myself and, and bringing them in. Is is it difficult to to translate your ideas for other instruments for the people who are playing with you at that time? Not really. I mean, most of the people in the bands that I play with, we've been working together for years and years, so it's a pretty instantaneous um, connection. Also, playing the organ, I control so much, so I'm controlling the the bass and the harmonies and the melody. So um, I think it's probably easier to, to move along quickly since I'm holding down those three aspects. And then, you know, you're dealing, after that, you're dealing with beat or, or, you know, I know just, you know, can give them a quick chord chart or something. It's usually pretty fast. Right. When, when you go into to write, are you starting at the organ and building out from there? Uh, it changes a lot of times. Uh, I'm the kind of person that if I have a project that I want to do, then I'll start writing. So I, I kind of do it in, in streaks. So I'm like, okay, I have this recording session, you know, who knows in two weeks. So I'll, I got to write some songs. So I'll really focus on that. Um, sometimes I'll, I'll sit at the piano and start that way. Sometimes I'll start with the organ. A lot of times, you know, it'll just, I'll wake up in the morning and have something in my in my head, and then I'll, I'll rush to the like some instrument, whichever one is closest, and try to to get it down before I forget it. At least record it. Um, so a lot of the process is like that. Yeah. How many times have you uh, have you had an idea like that and it's it's slipped away and you weren't able to hash it out before it? That's left. That's a good question. I I don't know. <laughs> Maybe they came back. And yeah, then, maybe they came yeah. back. Or know. maybe they will come back. Let's just say I mean, that. Let's, let's keep the spirits high on that. Yeah. yeah.
yeah it's it's way easier now than it used to be because you know everyone has a, a, a some kind of recorder in their phone basically so even if it's in the middle of the night or if i'm traveling and i'm not in the uh uh near an instrument i can just grab the phone sing into it and you know do little verbal notes of what it should be and then i'll go back later and listen to it and then really figure it out once i can get to an instrument gotcha yeah years ago it was harder though before there was recorders everywhere and you know all that sort of stuff yeah to remember it yeah yeah i think uh I think paul mccartney or john lennon spoke about that like briefly that i'm paraphrasing this but they're like if we didn't remember it it wasn't good enough to be jotted down or, or something along those lines i could be way wrong about that yeah, but that's no, i've kinda... heard that i've heard that quote i'm okay. not sure who it's from but yeah i've heard that before all right i, I appreciate you backing me on that adam because i was <laughs> it was a little bit timid to, to say it but yeah that's kind of an interesting way of looking at it you know maybe maybe that is the, the correct way to look at it or maybe there's the correct way for them because there's no there's a right or wrong answer but it is the fucking beatles saying that so yeah they might have a point right i mean they probably had really great memories too yeah that. now what were we just talking about uh the cash players started in uh new york yeah mm -hmm. and then you moved down to miami i did i moved there and you know continued the band from there uh, did you did you bring any of the people that you're working with in new york down to miami no but i mean i met great uh, musicians in miami so if i'm doing a gig there i'll i'll usually play with those guys sometimes you know if it's if someone's around from the other from new york or i, I have a, a a few different variations of the band mm -hmm. so you know it's really depending on who's available at the particular time but everybody is of the same mindset they understand what's going on it's not like uh it's or is it is it different at all when you're playing with people who, who are in new york and people who are in miami and all these other places is it will it sound differently or are people approaching the songs differently no, I think the approach is pretty much the same. And, you know, I wanted to keep the band that way. I wanted to make make it so it was flexible and there wasn't any uh, permanent members. Um, so it can be ever changing and always inspiring. And, you know, also it's a lot easier to to do it that way, because, you know, if you if you have a set band with certain certain players and the one person is you know, say on the road with the, on another tour for three months, it kind of takes you out of any opportunities that might come around. Yeah, that that, that might hinder it a little bit. Yeah. Uh, was did you find it difficult to find members in Florida, or was it that just came really easily? Like you just kind of got immersed. I mean, when I when I first moved there, you know, I just was out on the scene, like meeting everybody and going to see shows all the time, and it's pretty quickly. Uh, I found everyone there to be super welcoming. And um, now uh, the two guys I play with the most now in Florida actually moved from Los Angeles and I had known one of the guys from there. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's always different. Now uh, when, when you were going there as a, as a kid uh, visiting your, your father, when he, when he was living down there, is it like the same kind of stuff that's going on? It's the same kind of scene or has it changed at all? since yeah, I would say it's totally different i mean the place dr smith was playing at was probably more of a traditional type jazz club where with scone cash players were playing in more i don't know if you would call it a rock venue but it's 
it's more of a like stand up and dance kind of thing than a sit down and and listen kind of thing mm -hmm. and what what made you want to make the move um just family stuff mostly uh be closer to family um and uh But what else? Yeah, I mean, my son's 10, so it's we have a lot more room to for him than if we're living in a New York City apartment. I could I could see your point there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, does, does location affect the music that you're making? Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, it only affects uh, maybe the, the lineup of the musicians. So if I'm in New York, I've got a bunch of guys I might call for the gig up here if i'm in miami it's different if i'm in brazil it's a different group of guys uh, and girls uh, or los angeles it's probably a different lineup but the, the songs are going to be the same it's just different musicians and i'm lucky enough to have a you know a lot of friends in the business that are just top notch so it's 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 always it's always sounding great right do they, do they put their own, does everybody put their own spin on what how they're playing these songs yeah probably it's probably a little different and you know i might tailor the set a little bit differently to um who it is like for example this weekend um playing with ian hendrickson smith up here in brewster and he played on uh as the screw turns and on blast furnace so we're doing more songs from that from those two records because he's here and played on those records and did all that sort of thing where maybe in Miami, I might choose different songs because it's a different lineup of people that played on the record. Right. Now this, this, uh, this weekend, these shows you're going to play, are you playing it on a Hammond or yep. I've got the Hammond B3 and uh, the Leslie speaker. So it's the full doing a full speed up here. <laughs> Full, full effect uh no i mean obviously there's been times that you couldn't play that the, the b3 right i mean in your in in your span or over the course of your music career does playing another organ type of organ or or even keyboard or, or whatever your whatever the secondary option would be does that affect the way that you play songs uh, it it may i mean i call them forgans for fake organ um, but I like playing them too, you know, there's different qualities and, and, uh, you know, I've did that for years. Um, you know, I would even do that on the Europe tours because with a, with a Hammond organ, they stopped making those models in about 1972, maybe 73. And even if the club or the venue or the festival may have an organ, um, or they're renting one or doing something, you never quite know the condition of it or what it's going to sound like because yeah. it's all mechanical moving parts inside. It's, it's not a kind of technology that the people really deal with anymore. So even in those cases, you know, if the organ was broken or something like that, it's, it's good to have a fallback so you can at least get, get through the show. So most of those stores, I would just bring the organ. And if there was a real B3 and it sounded great, I'd 100% use that. But if there was no organ or if there was some issue, then go with the go with the forgan. Tried and true, organ. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, now, on, on top of the Scone Cash players, you also make your own music under your own name. Yeah. So Adam Scone is what I use for I guess more of the, the jazz 
stuff that I play in the jazz projects. Mm-hmm. So um, I've made, uh, I don't know now, three or four records under that. I have a new one in the, in the works that's really super interesting. Um, and I've, in the last few records, I've enjoyed putting in a different uh, musical combinations, like Low and Slow, has uh, Ian Hendrickson Smith again on that, and he's playing only baritone saxophone, um, which is the low part, and most of the songs are slow or ballads. Um, and then also a vibraphone player named Tom Beckham. I always loved the sound of organ and vibraphone, but I never together, but I never got to do it. So we did it for that record. Yeah, it definitely has a, a jazz feel to it. Yeah. The new one is uh, is organ with pedal steel, which really turned out beautiful. I can't wait till that one comes out. That's an interesting combo right yeah. there. It worked perfectly. Wow. Okay. Happy with that one. Um, now, was the first uh, solo release of Adam Scone uh, the wild new electric organ sounds of Adam Scone in, back in 2002? Was that the first? Yeah, that release? was... That was the first release of my record. I, that was actually probably recorded in about 96 or 97, but okay. I, I put it out uh, for a few years. And that features the great Ben Dixon on drums, who I was lucky enough to know and and work with him. He, a drummer on so many of my favorite old Blue Note records um, from the 60s with with Jack McDuff and with big John Patton and with Grant Green. And um, I found him, you know, in the city and we started working together a lot. And just to hear those same beats on like playing with me from the albums that I grew up loving was an amazing experience. It must have been a trip. Yeah. Wow. Um, And it was, was the next release ice cream uh, scone in 2015. Was it the next? Uh, I think re- so. I think that's that- how it worked. Yeah. I think Ice Cream Scone was next. And then uh, Low and Slow. I did a, a, a collaborative record with Rudy Petschauer, who's the drummer with Sugarman 3, and John Hart. It's like, I think it's called Hart Album Scone, something like that. But that was a more of a jazz project, too. Mm-hmm. What was the the reasoning for kind of taking that that hiatus from 2002 to 2015? Yeah, those years I was just really focused on um, being a sideman. I didn't really have a I didn't really have a motivation to lead my own project. Mm-hmm. So I was busy. I was on the road. I was making a bunch of other records, but just not taking the time or even even wanting to to make my own records. So hopefully between that one record and, you know, 15 years later or something, there's a, there's a change for the better. Who knows? <laughs> um, now the, the most recent release that, that we, we just mentioned a little bit ago, uh, low and slow, uh, that's from 2021, right? That sounds right. Okay. Yeah. We're, we're going to go with it. Um, and, and obviously that, that had more of a, of a jazz feeling to it. But do you think that that could have been a Scone Cash Players album? Oh, no, not at all. No. It's not even intended to be in the same same genre. I mean, I always think of it, Adam Scone, essentially the jazz stuff, Scone Cash Players is the the funky soul organ stuff. Mm 
Gotcha. So it's, in my mind, it's completely separated. Um, Would have been totally, totally different. Unrecognizable yeah. from what it from what it was. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't play a whole, I wouldn't do a Scone Cash Players record and have, you know, all ballads on it. I don't think that it's, it's really would work the same way. <laughs> but we're going to find out because that's the next album, right? That's what you're going to work on. I don't know what I'm going to do next with them. I mean, I, it still feels pretty fresh. Um, Brooklyn the Brooklyn came out uh, September of last year. And now I'm just focused on trying to get the band some gigs and get out there on the road and see see what happens how soon um before making a record do you do you know what you what you want to do with an album whether it be under your own name or scone cash players well i mean for for songwriting things like that i'm a procrastinator so uh, and i have to have a reason to write i've, I've found over the years so it's pretty short like i'll just start I'll, I'll just if i know i have to do it i'll get inspired and it all comes together that way what tends to inspire you to finally like, all right, it's time to, it's time to write. Well, the new one, uh, the Brooklyn, the Brooklyn, I've been spending a lot of time in Brazil in the last few years and really finding new music there. I wasn't aware of and uh, falling in love with it. So I use that as a big inspiration. So I'd say it's a lot of the things that I'm listening to at the time um, can inspire me, you know, different influences, different rhythms, things like that. Mm -hmm. What, what led you to Brazil? Um, oh, my wife, Georgia is from Brazil. So, oh, okay. um, so we, you know, when I met her, I started going a lot with her and visiting and it really opened up me to a whole different uh, kind of Brazilian music because I had known the stuff that very popular sort of in the jazz world um joe beam and you know all these uh, great players like that so i knew that music but i didn't know this whole other world of things that are probably less popular here than that and it, it really opened my my ears up and mind up the, the scone cash players did an episode of the florida room and i i was, I was watching that before we uh we did this this interview um yeah that was so fun yeah, and that was at a, at a place called Max Club Deuce, and that was in Miami, right? It's in Miami, yeah. So it's an interesting story how that whole thing came together. Um, so, well, Max Club Deuce is the oldest bar in Miami. Oh, wow. One of the diviest bars in Miami, for sure. Yeah, I, could, I, I got that feeling from the, from the video. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's been a lot of, like sort of famous thing anthony bourdain there would would shoot a clip about that place every time he was in miami um you know just everyone knows that the the decorations the inside all come back it used to be the i guess the after shoot hangout for when they were making miami vice in the 80s so it still has that sort of 80s look i guess they had renovated it the crew of miami vice had renovated it they gave him a bunch of cool neon lights to put in there so it's not a music venue at all. Um, I don't know if they've ever really had music in there. And I just had this crazy idea, like, what if we got to play at the Deuce? And what if, um, you know, we uh, just showed up at eight in the morning, moved the organ in and just played a quick set of music and made a little video about it. So 
Um, it's a giant surprise that they actually let us do it. Yeah. Uh, it's like, well, they're never going to let us do it. But my friend Danny and uh, Mikey sort of made the connection with them and, and knew them. They said, oh, yeah, sure, let's do it. So, yeah, one morning we uh, put the organ in the van and went down there and wheeled it in at eight in the morning and played a set to whoever was in there. And that was it. And then took it out and left and end of story. It's a one once in a lifetime experience. That's for sure. Yeah. Was it was it a weekday, if, if you could recall? Yeah, I think it was on a Wednesday or something like Wednesday yeah. at 8 a.m. That's a that's an odd blending of worlds. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, like, what what was the what was the people's reaction when you finally um, wrapped up the set? Because I, the the video kind of cuts out. You don't really you don't really hear. But did did people start paying more attention each song that you guys played? I don't think so. No, I think they were probably pretty indifferent, and I think they were probably happy that we stopped because it was ruining their ruining their early morning drinking yes yeah i mean if you're going to a bar at 8 a.m i would imagine you're expecting some some solitude uh some quiet and you probably don't want to hear a band but you were there living it up just kind of just changing the format a little bit yeah just you know certainly you know (laughs) yeah i mean i was trying to think what that would be like you know why is a band playing at 8 a.m in a at a dive bar in miami did anyone ask at all no no one asked and no one no one told you to, to cut it people are just let, letting you do it letting you hang out people, they, it was videoed <laughs> so i think some people did not want to be in the video i remember <laughs> that which i i can't honestly i can't blame them right um, so there were some people that would like sit on the other side of the video or they would come in and then they just leave because they don't want to deal with this you know, the cameras and the band and all that. But <laughs> pretty crazy experience that I never thought would happen. Uh, yeah. Super that, fun. Was that one of the oddest places that you've performed a set? Yeah, I mean, I played in a lot of bars like that, but usually it's at, you know, 11 p.m. or midnight or something. Not 11 a.m. Yeah, <laughs> not 8 a.m. I mean, we showed, yeah, we showed up... Uh, they said, "Oh yeah, you can get here when you know when our when we're starting to open up." So I think we got there at six in the morning. Yeah, it was still in the beginning of the video, and this will be linked below. Please yeah. go go watch it. It's it it's a good it's a good video. It it was you guys were it was dark outside when you guys were driving there. Yep. Kind of yeah. loading in, but the crack it on. Yep, that's it. <laughs> that's a, such a great idea. <laughs> and a great video and again that'll be linked below whatever yeah please check it out i mean i don't know how many people have really seen that thing but it's a it's a one uh one of a kind that's for sure yeah uh yeah so hopefully hopefully some more people go and check that thing out because it, yeah. it is worth a watch yeah the florida room they have some other great episodes as well yeah no. um adam uh absolute pleasure chatting with you sir yeah but, thank uh, you so much before i let you go we got a lot of promo stuff to do because you got you got a lot of things going on and we got to let the people know about it okay let's do it so um again that video start there it'll it'll, it'll be below whatever you're you're listening to this on i I highly recommend going and checking that out 
and uh scone cash players music is streaming everywhere wherever you get your music that's where you can find it uh you can find the newest album brooklyn to brooklyn at daptonerecords.com and you can find the other releases at the band camp which is sconecashplayers.bandcamp.com uh is that the best place that people can go support yeah, as well um blast furnace is currently reissued on coal mine records uh, so you can go right to the coal mine records website to find it there yeah and uh so go go visit coal mine as well yeah definitely there you know i i feel so honored and privileged to work with both daptone and coal mine they're my two favorite record labels and uh you know they like to work together as well it's just and they've really helped me get my music to a a bigger audience amazing stuff coming out of both those record labels constantly um great stuff and uh you can find shows and news by going to the website at sconecashplayers.com or by following them on instagram at sconecashplayers all one word no underscores this is true Uh, that is true all right good deal one checked off now adam solo music is also streaming everywhere wherever you get your music that's where you could find uh, these releases that we've been talking about uh, and the most recent album, Low and Slow, uh, you can find that through the band camp, your band camp, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. That is that the best place to go find it? Yeah, you can all that was put out through uh, distributed through Seller Live out of Vancouver. Okay. Um, so you can find it on their their record as label as well. Good deal. And uh, Adam's Bandcamp is adamscone.bandcamp.com and you can stay up to date with shows, news, and all that good stuff by following his website, which is adamscone.com, or by following him on Instagram at adamscone, all one word. That's it. Then finally, third one. Shogman 3's music is streaming everywhere as well, correct? That is true. Yeah, so go check that out, and uh, you can find their music at their bandcamp at the sugarman3.bandcamp.com yeah also the those records are all on daptone and the old ones are re-released all beautifully made vinyl um you know good pressings tip on jackets everything you know you want when it comes to the, the good stuff everything on the up and up around there yeah. mm-hmm. good deal and uh is there anything else we got to promote adam uh let's see no not really i think we hit it hit it all together um, we, got, we got a pretty good spread here yeah we got yeah. a lot happening so um jacob it's been a, a real pleasure and thanks for having me on the on the show really appreciate it pleasure is mine sir and uh thank you so much i'm gonna start recording this i'll talk to you in a minute all right all right very good thank cool. you thank you sir